I think that there's this stall out that kind of happens mid-career where that the stakeholder management, the communication skills, the storytelling, and the MBA level business understanding and business skills become really, really relevant if you want to either participate more holistically as an IC or become a leader. And so my theory is that there's not enough resources to help people bridge that gap. The discipline of design is now key to building great products. More and more companies are making space for it at the higher levels. More people than ever want to become designers. And most of us who already do the job want to find ways to have just a little bit more impact in our teams. Welcome to Design Meets Business. I'm Christian Vasile, and on this podcast, I bring you world-class product and design leaders who found ways to shape products, companies, and entire industries, and who are now sharing what they know with you and me. My hope is that we all get to learn from the experiences, ideas, and stories shared on this podcast, and in the process, become better designers. On the show today, I'm chatting with Ryan Scott, the founder of Accelerate Design Company. Ryan is helping designers develop business skills to do more influential work and have more meaningful careers. Before that, Ryan worked for some of the biggest companies around, whether that was leading the redesign of the booking flow at Airbnb, bringing food photography to DoorDash, or designing for Salesforce. Ryan understood and always put an emphasis on the importance of marrying design with the business goals. In this episode, we're talking about how to think of failed experiments, how different companies think of design and why, about why incremental optimization might not always be the right approach, and about why it's important to consider saying yes to work that you might initially want to say no to. I hope you're going to enjoy my conversation with Ryan Scott. Ryan, welcome to Design Meets Business. Over the course of your career, you've managed to work with some cool companies and big projects uh, with big tangible results. And some of your achievements at Airbnb are worth spending hours discussing. Unfortunately, we don't have hours, but hopefully just enough time to scratch the surface. Uh, you're also an avid design coach talking about how to link design with business. So it makes a lot of sense for you to be on a show. And I'm really excited to have some of these conversations. Before we go a bit deeper, let's begin um, with some cliff notes of who you are and how did you start in design and where you are right now. Perfect. Firstly, thank you so much for having me. This is an exciting topic to talk about. I think is becoming even more necessary in the industry uh, with so much change happening in the industry. So this is really good timing. So a bit about me, I think a couple of things that make my background unique are that I've always been a designer and I've always run a business. So I, I accidentally tripped into design when I was in high school. So this is, I don't want to date myself. This was years ago, but many years ago, but I had a, a teacher that really encouraged me. I took a graphic design class and I just liked it. So I just started doing it and I didn't know what it would become, but I liked it. So I kept doing it. At the same time, I was about to go to university and university in the States is extremely expensive and I had no idea how I was going to pay for it. And so I just started doing freelance design and running my own independent agency, which I did throughout my entire undergraduate university career and managed to pay for that schooling with debt free by just doing design work. So for me, starting design at a very young age, I think I realized I've been a designer for about half my life now. So it's been a minute. 
but it's always been tied to running that business as a designer and working with many businesses as their freelance consultant. I think a couple other things that have been different for me is that I went in-house in tech, but I've worked at so many different types of organizations. So I've worked at seed stage startup, series A, DoorDash was series B through D while I was there. So very early days. Airbnb was right, it was a couple of years pre-IPO and Salesforce was already well public by the time I was there. So I've seen design teams operate at all of these different stages of a business, which has really influenced how I think about approaching design. And the cultures at those businesses were also very different. So some were sales-led, edge-led, product-led, and Airbnb was design-led. So I've also seen different functions take point and how does that then trickle back down to how they use design and what they think about design. Thank you for the intro. I think uh, we'll definitely go back to Airbnb being a, a design-led company and how design is seen there and uh, compared to some of the other ones. But before that, I just want to real quickly draw uh, some sort of parallel because I have a, I didn't realize, but I have a very similar story. I've, I've also been running my own business while I was uh, studying design. And I'm curious, how did you find doing both at the same time? Because what I found was that the, the curriculum was a few years behind what I was already practicing with some of my clients. So school for me, for example, design school wasn't really, this hasn't really taught me so much from a design perspective. It taught me more around working with other people and discipline and sending things on time and all of these things that school generally teaches you. But in terms of design, it just hasn't taught me that much because it was slightly backwards compared to the industry. What were your, uh, what was your experience there? That's interesting. I think similar. I still feel like I gained some technical skills and some coaching that I wouldn't have just working independently with the clients. But I think the clients really augmented what I was learning. One of the tricks that I did while I was an undergrad was you know, maybe I was a freshman or a junior. So first couple of years, and I would talk to the seniors about what they were learning. And then I would go get a client to go learn that thing. So by the time I got into those courses a couple of years later, I'd already done multiple branding projects or multiple website projects. And so school became a lot easier in some ways. My professors were very gracious about me. I think I did have actually a client at one point in my senior year who was in England. And so I'm like building this website for them and we're having late night calls and I kept skipping some of my classes, but my professors were really gracious and understanding about that because they wanted to encourage me to do the real world work. I feel like they augmented each other, but the schooling didn't go as far in developing the skills that I would actually need in a professional environment as doing as much freelance. So what was missing there when you said it didn't go as far? What exactly did you think? Where was it falling short? I, there's just such a difference between doing something hypothetically and doing something for real in terms of how many things can happen that you don't anticipate. So I've taught, actually, I've given lectures at that university. I've worked at boot camps and taught design. And a lot of that curriculum is teaching these technical skills. And you want to understand how a project might work end to end. You want to understand when to do user research. You want to understand how Figma works and all of these technical things. It's really hard to simulate what happens if the client doesn't like it. What happens if the client's wife doesn't like it? Okay, like you're not trained to handle these totally crazy and absolutely realistic curveballs that might happen. In UX, it might be this test fails and the change we thought was going to be really successful wasn't in the way we thought. What's the next step? Because now the CEO is looking at us like you guys just wasted a bunch of time. I don't think the educational program really uh, prepares you for 
that stakeholder management and to expect the unexpected. I also don't think most educational programs talk nearly enough about the business side of design, which is a huge failing, I think, in academia. Let's talk about that because you are putting together a course for which the tagline is describing the ROI of design, master the business fundamentals to persuade stakeholders, gain influence, and level up your design career. And only from that tagline, I think we can have a conversation for a few good hours. So tell me how this idea of coaching designers came, how the idea of the course came, and then how did you end up actually building this curriculum that I assume you see as, as a better fit for someone who might want to level up? Yeah, so I think we have to go further back. And a lot of it's rooted in that running a business while running a design business while learning design and realizing where there were some gaps. And then going into the industry and realizing that I didn't feel always very equipped to have influence, change the roadmap, or even understand why am I working on this project when I am? What's the timing? What's the goal? I maybe have some sense of, oh, well, the PM wants to hit this metric, but why? If you think about putting on your user research hat and asking five whys, I realized I could only answer maybe the first one or two whys because my PM wants it because they want to hit this metric. But what's their motivation? Who's their boss? What does that person need? What does the business need? Where are these things coming from? And why now? And why me? And what am I really trying to solve? And so I felt like I was not going to be able to be a very successful leader in design without having a deeper understanding of those fundamentals. The kind of framework that's guided a lot of my thinking is I think you have art on one side of the spectrum and you have pure business on the other and design is in the middle. A lot of people think that design is art and I think that's wrong where art is really about self-expression and communicating a feeling, but there's no like business objective to that. Design is a lot of the same compositional features. You're thinking about layout, color, typography, illustration, iconography, a lot of these types of things. And that's on the artsy side of design. And it's those things are often the visual things that a non-designer can interpret and see and understand. And so a lot of people think that's what design is, are these visual things. But Design is always applied to a business and that's what makes it design. On the opposite end of that spectrum, you have like PMs or marketing people where it's all about business strategy, but there's no visual execution necessarily to that to make it real. And so design exists within this spectrum. And as a designer, you can totally have a fulfilling career as a person who does icons or a person Think Airbnb hired someone who just specialized in gradients at one point. So you can absolutely specialize in these areas, but a lot of designers want to move up in their career and get more businessy and start to have more influence and either ask those deeper questions or start to influence the answers to those questions. But designers are not taught business. We kind of learn it through osmosis by just being in the environment and working with stakeholders. And that's very inefficient. You're doing like bumping around in the dark, trial and error as a way of learning. And your career is sometimes on the line. If you make a mistake, it's a great learning experience, but stakeholders don't want to work with you now, or you lost your job or some other kind of consequence, maybe not that dire, but those things do happen. So for me, wanting to understand business led me to get my MBA. And in doing that for three years at UC Berkeley, I realized designers are missing a huge amount of context. And the people that I'm working with on the business side have no idea what design is or how to leverage it. And I think a really good case study of that is during my first year at Haas, design thinking was a required course, but 
our year was the last year the design thinking was required because so many people complained about it being, quote, fluffy and unnecessary that the university had to back off and make it an elective. So the business people aren't learning about design and aren't really understanding it are actually starting to push back against it and designers aren't getting that. So I wanted to, with this course in describing the ROI of design, bridge that gap and give designers a very specific curriculum of just the things that I learned from all of these courses that would be necessary for a designer to move the needle at their organization. Do you think it's enough that just half of the room does the work? If designers become really good at talking about the value of design, but as you said earlier, the other side in the room, they might not be interested in it, they might not understand it, they might push back against it. Is it then enough that design can do a better job and try to persuade the other ones? Or is it also a matter of perhaps trying to educate the other, perhaps the other people also trying to educate themselves on what design can do? That's a great question. I think there's the ideal answer and there's the realistic answer. And the ideal answer is that business people are looking at these industry leaders like Airbnb and Tesla and Apple, which is the most valuable company on the planet, and saying design is a core part of all of those companies' DNA. From like the most foundational level, design has been very successfully leveraged to create value for these companies. We should know more about that. We want to do that too. Ideally, every business leader would come to that conclusion by looking at these case studies, but for whatever reason, they're not. And so I do think it often falls on designers to have to articulate the value in a way that resonates with them so they are become open-minded to, okay, this is actually something. I can see this. I understand what it specifically means to my business. It's not just Apple does a lot of great design work. We should too. But how does that play out for us on the ground making decisions operationally? I understand what that means, and I'm excited about trying it out and seeing what the value is to our business. So I do think it falls on design more often than not, which is why I started creating a course for designers to articulate and not trying to train the business people yet. Yeah, I also think something else plays in here, which is uh, you can only focus on what you can control. The fact of the matter is that you can't control what the other people know, but what you can control is how you can try to persuade them with the knowledge that you have. So perhaps it makes sense that's where you should focus on and be a bit less concerned about what the other people do and more concerned about how you can bring design and uh, highlight design in the room. With that being said, I was taking a look at the syllabus for your course uh, beforehand. And I've, if that's okay with you, I'd like to dive in a little bit deeper into some of these because first of all, I'm interested in why you think all of these four are the important ones that, that you want to teach people for the course, but also for each one of them, because some of them might seem a bit fluffy, as you said earlier. And I think it would be interesting to bring them down to earth a little bit and understand how does this translate into what I do as a designer on a daily basis with my team. So the first one is gain credibility by connecting design value to business metrics and financial outcomes. What is this all about? Sure. So this is really where designers focus often, but I think there's a different way of thinking about it. I think there's different levels. And I teach this framework where you've got a design outcome, which is the work you did. Like we launched a component library or something like that. Right. And you have the customer outcome, which is maybe this reduces cognitive load because we've created more consistency. And so I think designers feel very comfortable talking about their work in the customer outcome lens. And I think that's right. Someone needs to do that and always root their value and the work they're doing in that customer lens. And I do think that a lot of business folks go deep enough and always root things back to the customer. From that, 
it can be difficult for business-minded folks or executives to understand, okay, you reduced cognitive load, which is a very designer way of thinking about a solution or an outcome, but what does that mean to our business? How does that actually level up to something that I can measure and I can say to my board, this is valuable to us, that's why we spent time and money doing this. And so I think the next steps, we go from kind of the design outcome, which is the project, the customer outcome, which we talk a lot about as designers, to the business outcomes, and then ultimately you have to connect that up to the financial outcome. And so a lot of executives are going to be thinking about that financial outcome level. A lot of teams you'll work with, like marketing or sales, are going to be thinking about their business outcomes and designers think about the customer outcomes. So if you can tie all those things together and say, we reduce cognitive load, which increase conversion, which increase sales, it creates this really strong narrative where everyone at every level of the business, regardless of their different interests or goals can understand how these things connect to each other. Yeah. So I think designers often don't go far enough into saying this is the relationship between cognitive load and conversion. And then everyone should have a pretty good understanding on the business side of the relationship between conversion and sales. So if you can start bridging those gaps for people, it helps frame things in a language or connect things to the language that the business stakeholders understand. So I think in theory, a lot of people would listen to this and would nod their heads and say, yeah, this fully makes sense. I think in practice, sometimes when you sit in your design team on a daily basis and a PM prioritizes your work and you're just being given, here's the next piece of work. Here's what we're working on next. And you as a designer don't seem to have that much influence. You're just doing what you're being told. How do you bridge that gap between what you've said, which is the ideal state and what I've presented, which is what I think a lot of people are struggling, not, not struggling with, but that's the reality of a lot of people on a daily basis. Yeah, I think what you're describing is such an interesting and, and pretty typical relationship between product and design, which is unfortunate, which is design as the service of product. And you see a lot of design teams report into product teams, which is strange because it would be weird if product reported to design and it's uncommon for engineering to report to product or product to report to engineering. But if design reports the product, everyone's fine with that. It's this strange relationship, this kind of sometimes subservient relationship of design as a function that hits metrics. And I think that's true in some sense. And that is part of the value that design creates. And that's why I start my course with that module is because that is the reality. And you are going to have to tell this story about hitting certain product metrics and that is realistically probably the thing you're gold upon. However, the, the kind of next thing that I talk about is we should zoom out and think about the value the design creates to the business more holistically. Yes, you can contribute to product value, but what else? I, I teach a framework that we look at from the market level to a company, function, product, team, and individual level. What is the potential value to the business in a project that you're doing? So if you create a completely new paradigm or convention, you've potentially added value to the entire market. And now suddenly everyone's using the hashtag, for example. At a company level, you can create all kinds of value that is specific to your business in terms of making it more competitive or increasing certain financial outcomes. You might make engineering work faster or easier if you have a design system. And so there's other elevations in which you can talk about the value of design, and that can change the level of influence you have. The case study I like to talk about in thinking bigger is when I was at DoorDash. So I started at DoorDash and there were eight engineers and no PMs and four designers. The company as a whole was under 100 people. And so it was very early days. 
we worked in an animal hospital in Palo Alto. And one of the projects I had was to bring food photography to the app. And if you look at the app today, there's food photos everywhere. But in circa 2015, that wasn't the case. And we were the only ones without it. And so I was tasked with bringing food photography to the app, including all the operational aspects of that in terms of hiring photographers, signing up merchants, getting those people connected, getting the photos, editing the photos, getting the photos uploaded into the product and creating that end-to-end flow. In addition to thinking about where should photography be in the app and how should it look and all the kind of traditional designery aspects of it. One of the first experiments we did was negative and we were questioning, is this something that's actually valuable? And so we were able to look at other metrics to determine this, it didn't move the metric we thought it would at first in that first experiment, but it did create impact in the product in other ways. And then by starting to ask that question and pulling that thread of what other types of value might this be creating, we realized that, oh, the marketing team is very excited about having hyper-local photography for all of its marketing campaigns. The business development team is really excited because they can go to some of these national partners and offer this as a service to them. And those national partners are really excited to sign with us if we can provide this value to them. So thinking outside of just the product metric that we wanted to hit, we really realized this had so much more value to the business holistically that it allowed us to continue on the project and figure out how to refine our execution so that the product metrics aligned, but we were able to keep up that momentum because we assessed that it had value in many different ways. And those secondary metrics that you've managed to hit, were those something that you were actually tracking from the beginning or when the first metric looked like it didn't really hit the mark, you then started looking at, is there any other impact we're doing? How did you start looking at those secondary metrics and when? Yeah, that's a great question. So we tracked a wide variety of things, but the team was pretty focused on just conversion, right? Is this increasing our revenue? And I think we were probably really hyper-focused on that. And so when we didn't hit that number that we wanted to, it created this conversation of, is this still worth doing? Do we still believe in this? As a designer, I was like, yeah, of course, this is an industry convention. It's pretty standard for any e-commerce thing. And as a designer, I'm looking at the kind of human evolution lens of this. You're about to eat something. You're about to put it in your body and consume it. If it looks bad, it could kill you. We assess everything we eat as to, I don't know, is this safe or not? And that's baked into our biology. So as a designer, I just felt like there was this intrinsic value, but we did have to still make that argument back up to the business. And so when that experiment didn't deliver the value that we thought, the next question was, okay, but we still believe this has value. So where might that value be? And we realized that it was affecting a different piece of conversion in a different part of the funnel than we were expecting. And that was able to influence our overall product strategy and keep going. I love that. The reason I asked that secondary question is because I I think this is very important. Not always the experiments that you run will be successful, but that shouldn't stop you from digging in a bit deeper and seeing whether, although it technically failed from the perspective of what we aim to do in the first place, perhaps this helped us succeed somewhere else. And I think digging a bit deeper into data and analytics and all of this is also valuable despite an experiment failing. So I I like that you came up with that example. If I can add to that, I think it's really important how you define fails, right? So we had a specific hypothesis and we had a specific goal and we didn't meet that specific goal, but was that the appropriate goal to begin with? I would argue maybe not. I think that you should start with a hypothesis and you should start with a goal, but be open-minded to potentially an experiment delivering some kind of insight or value to the business in a way that you weren't expecting or weren't necessarily incentivized to hit. 
because you know you want to deliver value to the business holistically, right? And so I think you have a pretty compelling argument. And we had to do this to go to the CEO and say, look, it didn't do this, but it did this and this and this. We still feel like it's valuable and worth investing in. Let's continue. So I think it's worth saying this didn't do what we expected. I don't know that's failure because we learned so many different things that did produce value to the business. And so as long as it's producing value to the business, I would consider it a success. You've covered the first two parts of the syllabus. Uh, let's move on. Next one is tailored tactics to be successful within your specific environment. What does this mean? So I think this is about being sensitive to the needs of the business and developing a greater awareness of the needs of the business. And I do think that designers, like I said, develop business awareness through osmosis, but they're not getting structured kind of formal training on this. And so this whole section is just about looking at the things your business is going through and the way your business is going to approach things given different variables so you can adapt and be successful. And when I've done a standard approach to design, for example, it may or may not be successful because I've just taken this one approach. Like this is the way I think design should operate in a business because that's what I learned in school or that's just my belief. You might get lucky and there might be this natural alignment between the business having the same philosophies or operating in the same way or being at the stage of its growth cycle. That's an appropriate way to operate. But if you're not aligned, there's no one size fits all to design. And so you're not going to be very successful in your business if you're not aligning to some of those deeper needs. And the last one is go to market with changes that will help design succeed in your business. Yeah. So that is all about you want to adapt to the business, but you also will probably need the business to adapt to design. And so this is about creating change in your organization to help design have more influence. And really what we teach in this is like a go-to-market strategy in terms of how do you identify early adopters of a change you want to make and get them on board with instituting that change, whether it's we should have more user research and listen to customers more, or we should do more cross-functional brainstorms and have more collaboration between functions. Whatever that change is, what's your backlog of changes as a designer that you want to make to make the business more design-friendly? How does that backlog intersect with the needs of the business so you can identify what's most likely to succeed as you bring this change or idea to market? And then how do you find those people that are going to help you drive adoption? I think this is such a key point and I'd like to dive a little bit deeper because oftentimes we sit in businesses and we think, I want to make this change or I want to make that change or, and you can't make it happen on your own as a designer. It's much harder than some other cross-functional partners that we might have. So then what you've just said there is so key. How can you find some early adopters or some allies in the company that could help you on the way to making that change? Let's talk a bit about that. How do you find those people? So I think that's a great question. There's a couple different dimensions to identifying those people. There's a model in marketing called the diffusion of innovations, and it's where the language like early adopters or laggards come from. And I think what's important takeaway from that model is you're looking for early adopters. And that's a minority of people. You shouldn't be trying to sell your idea to everyone in the organization. You should find the people that are going to be most likely to adopt something when it's not fully fleshed out yet. And this group is technically called like the visionaries. They're people who are excited to try new things, but you don't have all the answers yet, but they're going to want to collaborate and run a pilot and find out. I would look for people who are like highly collaborative, excited by new ideas 
have this like how might we attitude in a, a kind of more tactical way is anyone who's proactively including you as a designer or asking for your opinion already is someone who might be an ally that you can bounce ideas off of and is more likely to get on board with trying something out. And once you have that person who's willing to help you run a pilot or ask more questions or connect you to more people or just be an advocate for that thing, that's a little bit of traction you need to help get the next group of people on board who are a little more skeptical and they need a little more traction and a little more evidence that this is a good idea. And then those people get on board and then the next group gets on board and the next group gets on board. So I think trying to find those people who you have a strong relationship with who are highly collaborative and willing to try new things is an excellent place to start. If I may add something there, I think oftentimes it's much easier to persuade people who you already have a good relationship with and you already mentioned there. And something that I believe in is whenever you join a team, you should try as much as possible to find the people who think like you and create connections and relationships in that business with some of these people who might not necessarily be designers. They could be product people, they could be engineers, they could be in marketing. And then I think it makes much easier this whole idea of persuading or trying to change minds or saying, hey, I've got this idea, what do you think about it? It's much easier to have the conversation with someone you have a good relationship with than with someone you don't. So first of all, is that something you agree with? And if it is, how do you as a designer build better relationships with your cross-functional partners? I mean, I definitely think that's fundamentally true. If you have a good relationship with someone, then things are going to be a lot easier than if you have a bad relationship or no relationship at all. I think one of the things that, you know, building those relationships with cross-functional teams, there's so many variables to consider. So I think it really depends on the culture. It depends on the individual. But I do believe that kind of the designers have the key skills to develop these relationships. And I think a lot of those key skills come from things like user research. It's about active listening and trying to understand what that person cares about. In negotiation, you learn about the difference between positions and interests. A position might be in a negotiation, the thing that someone says they want or need, and the interest is the motivation behind it. Someone might say, we need to run A-B tests and they need to be statistically significant. Otherwise, we can't make any decisions. That might be what they're saying. What they might mean is, I don't want to be wrong and I need a greater degree of validation so I don't make a mistake and look silly or lose my promotion. And so I think if you put on this kind of user research hat and you actively listen and you talk to those people, you're going to understand what's really driving their positions and driving motivations for the decisions that they're making. I think the other benefit of like really taking this user research and active listening approach is you're going to have a, a better understanding and your just openness to a better understanding of their position leads to trust. And then that trust becomes the foundation of that relationship that leads to influence. Let's switch gears a little bit, touch upon something you've mentioned uh, all the way in the beginning, where you've said you've worked for all the, these different companies, uh, different organizations of different size at different points in the journey of the organization. How have you seen design work at different companies, whether that was Airbnb, pre-IPO, whether that was DoorDash very early on, how is design treated and how did it work at some of these different companies? That's a great question. And it actually, I've reflected a lot on how these teams operated and why they operated in different ways. And the thing I found to be the most highly correlated with how design is used is typically the background and expertise of the founders. When you look at people that I've worked for, like Mark Benioff or Tony Hsu or Brian Chesky, they all have extremely different backgrounds and that changes the way that they run their business, which then in turn changes the way that they use design. So I do think if 
there's a reason that Google is a very engineering-led organization. It's because Larry Page has a BS in computer science. He's a computer scientist. So his values, interests, his awareness of computer science is deeper. His preference for solving things in that way is deeper. And he's got some skills to assess people that he's hiring. And so he's going to hire this world-class engineering team and they're going to solve world-class engineering problems. So they're going to use design very differently than Mark Benioff, who has a BS in business administration and is very, I say Salesforce is a very sales-led organization. So that approach I find to be the most correlated is that background. In At Salesforce, I'm going to generalize, but my feeling at Salesforce was design being something that brings things to life so we can get it in front of people and get them excited about it and we can sell as much as possible. And the sales function of Salesforce was really prominent. At DoorDash, Tony's background being operations, the way he would approach many business problems is with that operational lens. How can we very quickly, very manually if necessary, test something out, try it and see and then maybe we'll build a product around it. And then we're going to use design in some ways if we need to increase the quality of that product. But there is a large bias towards like moving very quickly and doing things without building something very robust. And then Brian's background is in industrial design. And so his focus is going to be, we want design at the beginning of the conversation. We want to involve them as strategically as possible. We're not just using them as a function to make things pretty. We want them as thought leaders where we can bring in the human element and bring in the customer element to every conversation. And it would feel weird if you had a meeting without a designer in the room. So I do think that the way those founders run their businesses then translates into the way design can be used and where they feel like design has the most value. And the culture of the company oftentimes comes from the CEO, which is what you've talked about. So probably if you want to work in a company where design is being seen as a more important function, you might want to look for a company that is not necessarily where the CEO is a designer. There's not a lot of those, but where the, someone high up in the leadership is a designer with influence that can then push for, for design and for the capability of design and, and all of that. So I think sometimes we as designers tend to get a bit deflated and disappointed when we end up working in, let's say, engineering-driven organization or sales-driven organizations, and then we don't really understand well, why is design not uh, getting that seat at the table, a, a proverbial seat at the table. And I think what you're saying here is very accurate because the culture is not design-driven and there's perhaps not so much you can do about that, is there? My whole course is about trying to move that needle on that. So I hope there's something you can do about that. And I think it comes back to that aligning to the interests, right? And demonstrating value where that person wants to see value first. And then when you can do that, you can start to broaden the conversation. And what you're saying is exactly why I went to Airbnb. I did Salesforce, then DoorDash, then Airbnb. And I saw how we operated in a sales-led environment and an ops-led environment. And it was really challenging in some ways and didn't meet certain expectations that I had, which some of those might have been unrealistic. But I wanted to go to a design-led organization and just feel how that would be different. And it was a totally different environment because people just intrinsically understood what I did and intrinsically understood the value of it. And I didn't have to advocate for it as heavily. So I felt like Airbnb is this pinnacle in some ways where I could just say, I think we should do this because of this. And people were like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Go do it. Make it happen. Uh, you didn't have to advocate as intensely, but what I appreciated from especially DoorDash was I got more rigorous about advocating for my work and aligning it to different interests and not just saying, look, design is valuable because it's valuable. We should do it because we should do it. Airbnb, everyone says, okay, that DoorDash, Tony says, 
show me how, like, show me what that means. Show me the value and explain to me. And I think as long as they're open-minded to that, that's great. And as long as you have a culture that's willing to learn and adapt, that's what you need, but you're going to have to align to certain things and then push in certain ways in different types of cultures. And that's just part of the job. Yeah. And I think that also teaches you different things. So at Salesforce, you've learned something about how to do design that was different than what you've learned at Airbnb, where design was seen in a different light. If you probably if you just work in organizations where design is being already seen as super valuable, you might not learn to manage stakeholders as well or persuasion or storytelling or all of that. So I guess there's always something you can learn regardless of where you work, but perhaps the job is, and I don't think it's necessarily easier, but it's a bit different, as you said, in a company like Airbnb versus Salesforce or, or DoorDash. Talking about this, you wrote a post some time ago about this idea of having to sometimes justify why you're in the room. And I assume that doesn't happen very often at a company like Airbnb, but it might happen in other companies, which might be more similar to someone listening, might be working at a in an engineering-led company. And sometimes they might have to justify themselves about why they're in the room. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, it's not a great position to be in as a designer. And it's a sign of kind of immaturity on the lack of the other stakeholders or the company as a whole to, and in that example too, it felt a little hostile, like, well, why are you here? Like, we have a bunch of engineers in the room. Why are you necessary? And it's a pretty extreme example of someone being very assertive about that opinion. But there is this kind of undercurrent vibe of needing to explain why design exists and explain why uh, design is valuable and the perspective is valuable. And that's really what kind of the first two modules of my class are about are, okay, design is moving metrics. We are seeing things from a different perspective. And we're contributing value in a much more diverse way and holistic way than just hitting the product metrics that PMs want us to hit. So I think that attaching value to something that's a little bit broader is a tactic that works really well for people who are hesitant and aligning to those interests and those priorities and framing things in a way that they understand as business stakeholders. I also think it's important to articulate why design is different, that it's not an operations function. You can't just put inputs in and get outputs. If you design a machine and you put in a certain amount of iron, you're going to get a certain amount of nails out of it, right? And that's just not how design works. And but that's how you teach operations. Or if you have a formula in math, you put in these numbers and you get those numbers out. And if you don't get the numbers out, it's wrong and you need to go back. And there's a certain way of thinking about business problems in statistics or in maybe marketing or definitely operations in that kind of linear way. And so I think we need to understand that's how some functions work and think. And that we need to educate the design is different. It's often non-linear. We don't know the answer until we throw a bunch of things at the wall and test it out and try. And sometimes that iteration and, and that process can feel a little um, unfamiliar to people. Yeah. So I think there's a good amount of alignment that has to be done, but then also a good amount of pushing on why we're there and why we think differently and why we operate differently and how that's valuable to have that diversified opinion and diversified approach to all the other functions that exist. Yeah, talking about how we operate a bit differently, let's unpack a little bit this idea of that sometimes it's okay to scrap incremental testing and to go for something completely different. You, there's another post that you wrote, you were talking about the Airbnb's booking flow and how incremental testing didn't do so much and um, you just changed strategy and did something completely different, operated completely different than how normally you would. Tell us a little story there and what the learning is from it. Yeah, this is a great case study that touches on a few things that we've spoken about today. So the, the background of this is I was on a team that 
operated outside of kind of Airbnb's normal operating mode. It was a little tiger team that got to redesign the entire mobile website from the ground up. And so traditionally the business had these silos and you've got the booking team and they own Android and desktop and iOS and all these different platforms. And so every team owned vertically all these different platforms. And so we spun up this team to say, we need to redo the entire mobile website and we're going to work horizontally. We get to own the mobile website platform and we get to own every surface on that. And so it gave us the ability to ask, are all of these individual surfaces that people have been optimizing, are they working well horizontally? Do we need to change anything? And we got to kind of go back to every piece of Airbnb and say, could this be better? What should we do? And so I started digging into the booking flow and realizing that there was a lot of optimization that we had the potential to do. And so this is a good example of kind of building stakeholder consensus incrementally. I gathered an initial group of people who were interested in having that conversation from each of these different teams that own parts of this very long booking flow experience and just asking the questions and doing that active listening and starting to understand what they cared about and why and what their world was like. But I got to be in the position of that facilitator who's having all these individual conversations horizontally that weren't happening already organically. From there, we were say, okay, let's do a little sprint and come up with some new ideas. And just asking some of those questions generated enough excitement that more people started paying attention and were like, okay, that is a good point. Yeah, we could do that better. And what happened was then Alex Schleifer got involved and got on board and got really excited about, okay, this could be better. We could do something that's more of a step function improvement. Then more people got on board. And then we had Brian Chesky up at an all hand saying, booking is one of the most important things we can do this year. And so then everyone was on board with this vision that we were creating. Through that process underneath, we were always iterating and doing research and doing some initial tests to see where things were landing. And a lot of these incremental tests weren't coming back dramatically positive. One of the nice things about Airbnb was we could say, look, we just know what feels better as a designer. And we could try to incrementally test this to a step function level improvement but it's really difficult. And sometimes you just need to hit the reset button. And even just from a thought exercise, think of what if we blew this whole thing up and started over, would we arrive at the same place we are today? And the answer was no. And so what started out as a thought exercise started to become the reality of we should just start over. And just because we didn't incrementally test this every little change, A, B tested to statistical significance rigorously, doesn't mean we didn't validate the things we were doing. We were always talking to customers. We were always looking at new paradigms in the industry that we could borrow that were proven. So we're always doing things that were backed in data, even if it wasn't like testing so rigorously. And we still test it. We still launch, but we launch bigger things that we felt more comfortable about because we had spoken to so many customers. And when we did this larger release, it was very positive because we had taken that time to back all the way up. And instead of coming up with what initially was this like very robust experimentation plan, and largely that experimentation plan was created to get executives on board. Once they got on board and said, let's just do this, go make it better. We were like, great. And we got to kind of remove ourselves from that, having to craft this like a uh, thorough narrative to let's think a lot bigger. And it was a really successful project and a lot of fun to work on. 
Yeah, I bet. I, I know you talk a lot about the quality of the team around you. As a designer, you oftentimes are judged by some of the work that you don't do yourself necessarily, whether that's engineering work, whether that's a PM, product marketing, whatever it may be. And I'm wondering, what are your thoughts around how do you assess the quality of the team that's around you as a designer, whether that's before you join a company or perhaps when you're in the company, or is that too late already? <laughs> that's such a good question. This is a struggle. This is a challenge. But to start, you're absolutely right in that, and I've experienced this where you might have the best user experience. You might have the best design. You might have validated it with customers, but the backend isn't set up correctly and it's impossible to build or impossible to build in a certain reasonable time frame, or it costs too much money. If the PMs, so many times I've realized the user experience is really dependent upon that experimentation cycle and what's getting prioritized. You could prioritize part of a function, part of a feature, or draw the MVP line too low. And it's not really MVP from a design perspective, from a customer perspective, but it's feasible to launch in a two-week sprint. All of those things that other teams have control over change your ability to do good work, change your ability to ship bigger things, change your ability to ask bigger questions. So assessing when you go into a company I think a couple things. One, the willingness to ask bigger questions. That's where I've struggled is like, I'm going to be the person who comes in and says, what if we blew the whole thing up and it's just started over? <laughs> I don't think that's a realistic thing to do every time, but it's a great question to ask just to shake people out of kind of their thinking. So are people accepting of that? Or, you know, is a PM saying, no, 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 like that is not on the roadmap. We can't do that. Or the engineer says that I've seen engineers' eyes just get wide with that question and their faces just go blank. So there's a little indicators and you might not get a sense of this perfectly until you're in a company of like how things are set up. And every company I've worked at is like more chaotic when you actually get into the company and you're like, oh, like I thought this was all really well figured out and there's actually a lot of work to do, which can be an opportunity too to, to change things and make things better. But I think that assessment comes down to, is this a collaborative environment? Are people okay with asking big questions or are they afraid of asking those questions? If we can make an argument that says this is valuable to the business because it's valuable to our customers, are we willing to start? Even if that starting point is not as holistic as redo the whole thing and it is more incremental, are designers going to be involved in that process? One question I would ask is what influence does design have over the product roadmap? Are you part of that conversation? Are the PMs in a room by themselves deciding the product roadmap and then they give it to you or are you participating? The two factors I would look for are that open-mindedness to collaboration and the willingness to ask bigger questions and the lack of risk aversion in terms of at least just asking the question. I really like that question of how evolved is design in deciding what's on the roadmap? I think that oftentimes tells a lot about how a company works and how it values design more so than their mission statement on the website or whatever else it may be. So I really like and, that one. And what's interesting about that too is everyone's going to have an opinion about design, right? Everyone is going to see a design and they're going to have some thought on what you should do differently. The PM, the engineers, the executives. And so it should be fair that design has an opinion on the roadmap, or maybe if you're more technical, some thoughts on the architecture and whether it's gonna scale, because we might wanna move the product strategically in this or that direction. So I think it's fair if everyone has an opinion about design, that design's also involved. And when you get that asymmetry, that's where you start to see there be issues with the culture and it becomes a lot more challenging to be a designer. Before we bring this one home, I really wanna to touch upon Accelerate Design Company, which is 
your baby, and uh, you have a really cool mission of, of helping mid-career designers develop their business skills to do more influential work. It's really what we've been talking about today, but I wanted to highlight that and ask a couple of questions about it. You know, how are you doing this? How are you coaching designers? Uh, are they coming to you with specific problems or are you helping them figure out where they could improve? How does that work on a daily basis? How do you work with designers to help them grow? Yeah, so there's, uh, there's a couple of different ways and I'll start with kind of the thesis for the business, which is there are so many resources for early stage designers. There's a million boot camps. There's a million videos. Everyone will teach you how to use the tools. You can take all kinds of workshops on Figma, but designers, I think, hit a wall around their mid-career where we talked about the spectrum of art to business, where they might want to be shifting to be more strategically involved or have more impact or at least have more self-determination over the work they want to do and more opinion on that roadmap, what's coming down and do I agree with that being something I wanna work with? So I think that there's this stall out that kind of happens mid-career where the stakeholder management, the communication skills, the storytelling, and the MBA level business understanding and business skills become really relevant if you want to either participate more holistically as an IC or become a leader. And so my theory is that there's not enough resources to help people bridge that gap. So that's what's really driving this. The ways I am expressing that so far and the strategy I'm taking is one with courses that I'm launching that are really hyper-targeted towards senior lead staff principal level designers in bridging some of those gaps and developing some of those skills. So that's where describing the ROI of design comes in and what are the frameworks for us to connect up to business value, understand what businesses do. And then on coaching, it's a lot more like a managerial relationship where it's, you know, my, my theory is that it should be very tailored toward the individual and understanding what their needs are. And so some people are going through job changes. Some people have um, questions about their career trajectory. Some people have a meeting with the CTO coming up and they need to come up with a narrative and be able to feel a little more confident going into that meeting and just having a sounding board is really valuable to them. And so I tailor all of my sessions and tailor all of my direction to that individual's unique needs on that week, while also trying to weave in what is your longer term career goal and strategy. So we're doing some short term work, but we're also keeping an eye on that long term trajectory. And if someone comes to you thinking, Ryan, I need some help with X, what could they then expect from you? Is it a weekly relationship? Is it a monthly? Is it a call? Is it How does that work? Yeah, it, it varies per person. Usually it's one to two calls a month and we'll hop on for about an hour. People will come prepared and then maybe send me in advance a few notes on what they want to talk about and we'll see where the conversation goes from there. Sometimes we uncover something that they hadn't thought about before and we'll want to dig into some tactics. But I try to take that context they're bringing and every month or every two weeks, give them something tactical that they can react to. And I describe it as a very iterative process. We're going to talk about your goals. We're going to come up with some tactics. You're going to take that back to work and you're going to try some of those things and then see what happens. And did the company receive it well? Does it match with your culture? Did you get some pushback? Let's analyze the results we got. Very iterative and very experimental, and then we'll pivot and adjust and dial things in as we go from there. Meeting every two weeks allows you to shorten that iteration cycle, but once a month is also enough when people have these big moments they can prioritize and say, I'm really stuck on this or I really need help with this. Uh, and that even just monthly helps a lot of people get through those things. 
So tailored to you, tactical, leave with something you can apply tomorrow if you want to, and then in a couple of weeks, come back and let's discuss how that worked, whether it worked and what, if you had any pushback. So it's a, it's this fe- continuous feedback loop of you feed in different ideas, tactics, whatever it may be, and then people you're coaching would go and, and apply that and, and try to make it work. The other benefit of coaching, I think, is that that coach is not part of the political scene in your company. So this is someone you can share anything with and get feedback from who's going to look at things from an outside perspective and bring in new types of ideas. And I've had people say, I don't feel comfortable sharing this with my manager, but can you give me some perspective on how to deal with my manager? So I think that's really beneficial. And then the other side that's interesting about having a coach is that person can transcend jobs. And I've had managers who I work really well with that they leave or I leave and you lose that rapport and you lose that relationship. And maybe that person you stay in touch with a little bit, but they're not able to coach you on your next job. And so I think having that person that transcends jobs and is able to see you from one job to another and talk about your overall journey and what can you learn from one environment. I think someone talked to me about, I need to figure out what my first 90 day plan is on my new job. So how can someone transcend those jobs and keep an eye on your overall like journey as a designer through your career. Awesome. That's great to hear. Uh, I I love this approach. I think it's also super important for designers because you said you're focusing a lot on that mid-level where these things start to become very important. But I think if I can add something, I think mentorship and coaching are important at every step of your career. And it's uh, you can always learn something. You can always learn from someone else. So whether that's by listening to a podcast or actually working with someone like you, I think uh, these are all very valuable. We're all, we should all grow at all times. So let's bring this one home. I always ask the same two questions at the end of uh, the podcast. Um, curious to see how every single person answers that same question differently. So um, I'm going to ask you the same. If you would have to highlight one action that you think led to your success, that in a way or another separated you from some of your peers, what would you say that would be for you? So early career, when I'm in high school and I'm interested in design, the thing that was different was I took every single project I could possibly get. And it didn't matter if it was like a $20 business card project to redesign. I think I got paid 20 bucks to redesign a substitute teacher's business card. I think there were classmates who made fun of me because I was like hired to optimize web photos for a website that sold GI Joes to hobbyists. I took every single job and it had nothing to do with like how glorious it was, but I was learning graphic design. I was practicing image optimization for web and photography. I was getting all these little skills. And so, um, you know, I've worked at some organizations where I've given learning opportunities to designers and they say, oh, well, I don't want to do that project because my advisor said I need to learn this specific thing or have this on my resume. So I'm not going to do that. And they passed up this learning opportunity, which is okay. Like sometimes you don't have time or sometimes it's not the right fit and you should feel empowered to not take things that are exploitive or not the right thing for you. But I do feel like You shouldn't over-optimize. You shouldn't try to like cherry pick the right experiences. What I did was just take as much as I could possibly get my hands on. And that gave me a lot of kind of tangential skills. So one, I'm learning all these design skills because I'm so hands on so many different things simultaneously, but I'm also learning how to sell to all these different clients. I'm learning how to manage my time as a full-time student while managing 15 clients at the same time. And so I think there is a benefit to, if you want to do something, do as much of it as you possibly can and not over-optimize for what is, quote, like the right experience for your resume, because that will result in time. I think it's also about not getting precious about all the work you do. At some point, 
yeah, perhaps you can, but it, at least in the beginning of your career, I also find it very important to try to do as many things as possible because otherwise, how will you find out what you like when you haven't tried to do different types of design work? So I think that uh, goes uh, hand in hand with some of my experience as well, where I still remember uh, as you were talking, some of these projects, I had flashbacks of websites that I spent weeks on for $50 and things like that. But uh, yeah, I, I guess I am here now. So it, something has worked. The last question is, what are we not talking about when it comes to design? This is a big one. I think there needs to be more formal business education in the design industry. And I think that starts at even the academic level. So many design departments in universities are rooted in art departments. And I do think that creates a misunderstanding for the business folks who don't see design and aren't connected to the art department in any way, they're not witnessing design and design's not talking to the business folks. And it creates this misconception that the design is about art and it, it deprives designers from the understanding of the application of their work. The expectation is that you, as you grow in your career, you'll impact the business more and you'll likely want to do that. You'll want to have more influence and you'll want to move down that spectrum. Like we talked about, Designers learn business through osmosis, but that's really inefficient. And that trial and error can be really costly to your career. In your career, you only get so many at-bats. You can only have so many jobs and then you retire and you can only make so many quote mistakes on your resume. And so you want to try to learn those things in an efficient way as possible. So I would love to see there be more business curriculum in every design department in every university in the world. Short of that, I think designers need to go and educate themselves on business more formally, whether that's through classes like mine or Khan Academy or whatever, having a mentor that's on the business side of the organization, not just design mentors. I spoke to someone and they're considering a master's. I said, don't go get your master's in design. You've got that box checked, diversify, go study some business in whatever way makes sense for you. But I do think more formal business education is really valuable. I think it's a key that's missing. I don't think a lot of people have done it. So you won't hear many people advocating for it. But having done it myself, I think it's really critical and will change your perspective. Thank you for that, Ryan. Where can people find more about you, read what you write, find the course, where can they get in touch? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn and would love to chat. And then my course is currently being hosted on maven.com in the design section. So there's many, many great courses on Maven and I've got a great relationship with them. So I highly recommend also taking business courses on Maven. Those are all great places to connect and learn more. And I am always happy to chat with designers. The best part of my job is talking to just dozens of designers from around the world all day long and always happy to continue the conversation. That's awesome. We'll put all of this in the show notes so people can easily find you. Ryan, this has been an hour that has passed by very quickly. So thank you for that. I hope people have learned a lot and enjoyed it as much as I did. And I hope you enjoyed it as well. So thank you very much. And I will speak soon. Thanks for having me. If you've listened this far, well, you've made it to the end of season three. We've learned so much from Alistair at Dropbox walking us through his great framework to present work. Maria Pentkovsky telling us about the importance of coaching, Tom Scott shedding light on what we can do to increase our chances of getting a job. This has been such an insights back 10 episodes, and this is by far the best season of the podcast, and I'm so excited to try to best it once again with season four later this year. Catch you all then.